0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Davina, and today my guest is Benny Grotto. Benny runs Mad Oak Studios out of Boston, and he's known for his works with bands like Aerosmith, Ben Folds, the Dresden Dolls, Weird Al Yankovic, and so many more. And inside of this conversation, we have a really great chat about the importance of producers and the techniques that a producer can bring to a session in order to create the best performances out of an artist. And we talk about how a producer can coach a musician, but without stepping on their toes and, you know, offending and upsetting people. Instead, there is a bit more of a subtle art to this. If you want to work with musicians, you know, you have to be very tactful in the way you uh Ask people to try things and, you know, you obviously don't want to offend people. So Benny has so many great tips inside of this episode and I think you're just going to love them. These are things that likely you've never heard before unless you've been in a room with an experienced producer, someone who does this every single day and who has developed these techniques. Producers have so many tricks up their sleeves and inside of this episode, Benny shares a ton of great tips. So with that said, I'm excited for you to dig into this. Let's just jump right into the episode. Benny Grotto, thank you so much for being
1: on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. For people who might not be familiar with you and your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on who you are, what you do, and how you got into
1: this? Sure. Uh, I am a Boston-based producer and engineer and mixer. Uh, I'm a co-owner of a studio here in town called Mad Oak Studios. Um, We've been at it for a couple decades now. Uh, I've been here since 2007 uh, as head engineer and... Like most of the people in my position, I started off uh, interning at a studio, got a job eventually at another studio, and then just kind of made enough records until people started. I should say I hassled enough bands to make records until uh, people started calling me to work on them. Um, And here I am.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So did you start off as a musician or like did you do you were? in the yes, bands and yeah, did all that yeah program, yeah yeah
1: when I was like uh, so I've, I've got two older brothers and my oldest brother is a guitarist and my next oldest brother is a bass player um, so when I was a kid and trying to sort out what I wanted to do I you know on the one hand I wanted to be like my older brothers and play music on the other hand I didn't want to be too much like them so I chose drums um, as my instrument and um, have been playing that ever since and then along the way just kind of picking up bunch of other instruments just sort of mostly through studio work actually just by necessity yeah i think that's what
0: happens with a lot of us it's like as you go along you're like oh i should probably learn how to play guitar or you know drums i'll or tell you what i'm like really
1: good at this is a, this is fun uh i am like a badass tambourine player because nothing is worse than sitting around in an overdub session waiting for someone to nail a tambourine part uh and you gotta be you just gotta become the guy that can do it in one take that's and a skill waste anyone's time yeah
0: yeah, same with like shakers. I, oh man, yeah, shakers yeah. are the oh, shakers worst. Yeah, shakers are
1: hard, man. Yeah, that 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 took me a little bit longer to master, but I'm I'm pretty badass at that too. My drumming is terrible. Everything else I do is, you know, pretty mediocre. But boy, am I good at t- tambourine. Yeah, hey,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a marker for that, right? I mean, back in the day, like with Motown, they used to always have like their percussion people who just did the tambourines and shakers. Yeah, the and tambourine's all that stuff,
1: like right? the loudest thing in, in the mix on every Motown record. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, like somebody. The engineer must have been a tambourine player. Right. You know, everyone likes to mix their own instrument loudest in, in mixes, right? <laughs> That's awesome. So you started off as a drummer and you got into recording. Like what got you into recording in the first place?
1: So when I was a kid, uh, my my bass playing brother and I uh, lived, lived in the house at the same time. My oldest brother at that point had gone off to college. But my brother and I would play a lot and my dad got us a Roland VS880 digital eight track, which was like super duper duper state of the art, you know, in in 1996, having like a a hard disk based uh, recording system with two built in effects, you could you could use two built in effects, you could only you could only use two and you could only assign them to one channel each. So you had to be very frugal in your processing. But that was like, pretty exceptional. And you could edit. Uh, I never learned how because it was not screen based. It was all like command based, like like a radar system kind of. Um, but I just kind of got interested in recording and um, over time found myself, I think, more interested in recording than in um, playing. And uh, I was a little like a teenage punk rocker uh, and and like kind of a scene stir. And so I started Kind of rounding up bands in Pittsburgh, um, where I went to high school, to come and record in my mom's basement with me, uh, and I eventually got the 24-track version of the Roland VS uh, recording system, uh, and that was like pretty much my first foray into like a you know a proper system and get, getting really getting into it. Totally, I I can totally relate to all of that because
0: my I mean I, I started off with like a four-track cassette uh, deck thing. And then, uh, and then my next step up was the, the Roland VS or VS 2400, I think, mm-hmm. which was probably the one that you got if it was 24 track version, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It could, con- and that could actually connect to a screen and you could use a mouse on it. So it felt a lot like a DAW, although I didn't know that yet. Cause I had yet to use a DAW in my life, but I, I understood what it was and that it was like what real studios had. So it kind of made me feel a little bit more, um, sort of legit.
0: I totally relate to that cuz I we had like a local studio in our neighborhood that was kind of like the the punk rock studio and everyone would go there and it was just in some guy's basement and I think he had like the the VS2480. So like the, the next model up. Um, but I always remember seeing like the screens and thinking like, this is what a recording engineer looks like. They've got screens, you know?
1: <laughs> right. Uh, and then you could use, there's like an EQ on every channel of that thing, which is very powerful. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. I want one funny anecdote about just as a total aside, because those recordings were terrible and I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, I remember when I went to college, I went to college at Berkeley for recording. So I had this particular moment where um, you know, I'd been making really pretty horrible, like objectively bad recordings for all these years through high school. And then I was taking this class at Berkeley and we walk in and we sit down and the teacher's got like, there's like an SSL, you know, in the front of the room and he's got like a tape on the, you know, a two inch tape on the, on the tape machine and he hits play and it sounds like ass. It's like a big band and it's just a horrible, hollow, terrible sounding recording. And he goes, okay, I want you guys to listen and take notes and tell me what, you know, we're going to talk about mixing. I want you to know what you think needs to be corrected on this, on this thing so we can get, kind of get it mixed. So, you know, we're all writing down like, oh, you know, the, you know, upright bass needs more hundred hertz and, you know, trying to be kind of like pretty clever about it, coming up with all these things. And uh, at at the end, he, he, he takes, you know, takes all the notes from the class and he reads them and he's it's all shit. Like I said, you know, very specific frequencies, gain, DB, all this technical stuff. And he walks over to the board and he hits like four or five polarity buttons, rewinds the tape and hits play again. It's like boom, this like unbelievably massive sounding mix. And everyone's like, what'd you do? And, uh, he's like, well, that's, that's phase, you know, and we were all blown away. And then I sat there and went, man, that fucking little button on my Roland VS 24, whatever it was that I had I'd no idea what it, I couldn't hear what it was doing when I would click it in and out when I was listening to the thing in isolation. Right. Cause it's, it's polarity, right? I, I, then went back and listened to some old like CDs that I'd made from from those early years and just hearing everything out of phase and going like,
0: oh, my God, I
1: blew it so bad. <laughs> like the, the the main thing that I was blowing on these old recordings was just not knowing that there's even such a thing as phase um, uh, and a polarity switch on the thing to, to, to correct it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. It's like the phase button is so important, but so many people don't know about it or why it's there. And like you said, when you're just listening to it in isolation, you're not really noticing it at all. But yeah, when when you actually hear someone flip the phase for the first time, and it like starts to like rumble, and your mix sounds big and full, you're like, oh shit! That yeah, that that's that's important. I'm gonna do that from now on.
1: Yeah, it was. It's uh, that's the to- sort of illustrative illustrative of the difference between like having. I, I don't know, being learning in, in 2021 where you can jump on like Gearspace or, or YouTube or something like that and and find out all this information versus 20 something years ago where like the Internet, of course, still existed. But the resources were like not you really had to know how to go looking for that kind of stuff. And and if you don't know what you don't know, you don't even really know to search for it, you know. Um. So, yeah, just it is it is one one advantage of the uh the, the modern era is just the the wealth of information of course that is a double-edged sword which i'm sure i'll complain about later in this interview
0: <laughs> well and i'm sure you being a drummer you probably tended to focus on recording drums I, I, maybe like that's that's how i felt when i when i first started it's like i gotta record my own instrument really well right so so speaking of phase it's like drums are where you're gonna where phase is gonna matter right
1: no one told me, and I it was a disaster <laughs> for all my my poor. Sorry to anyone who recorded with me, you know, between the years of you know in the late nineties or whatever. I'm so sorry.
0: Yeah, I think I think when you're first getting started, people are a little more forgiving with it. But but you but the thing is, you started, and that's 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 something a lot of people don't even do, right? Like yeah
1: yeah. I, mo- most of all, I apologize to my mother for having to listen to these fucking awful rackets taking place in the basement like every weekend.
0: <laughs> yep. I, my parents would also agree with that as well. Cause we used to have like a really big screamo scene around here and it was like, we get all these young kids that were just like trying to get into it. And my mom would be like, what the fuck are you listening to? Like what's happening? <laughs> my parents were like totally not into the, t- the type of music that I listened to. So
1: that's good. Yeah. Th- well, if they were, you wouldn't have been into it. That's the thing. It's like, if you put on, if you put on one of those records and your mom's like i love this you're gonna be like i better find something else to listen to like this is no longer cool <laughs> yeah it's true
0: I, I always gravitated more to like my uncles they were like the ones that totally. listen to like yeah, the yeah. different things right Yeah,
1: that's the way it is for teenage boys you don't want you don't want like you don't want anything that your parents like to have any sort of impact in your life whatsoever but uncles are totally cool yeah <laughs> like uncle's the guy that's going to give you a beer at a at a cookout or something you know yeah
0: exactly exactly yeah my uncles were like my first concert and all that stuff so it's like that that was my initiation into real music i felt was like you know my uncles were there to help to like be like don't listen to what your parents listen to that's garbage like you know listen to the ramones or something like that you know right exactly (laughs) awesome so so as a drummer how would you feel like your ability to play drums has influenced the work that you've started to do later in life
1: uh i i i hope to be as objective sounding as possible when i say this i I genuinely believe this is true and this isn't just like a a weird like drummer comment but i actually think drummers usually make the best recording engineers and and maybe bass players are sort of tied for, for 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 doing you know band oriented music obviously genres where um there's like different you know stylistic concerns maybe it's not so important but I think about the engineers that I know who are really good, and they're almost to a to a person drummers or bass players,
0: yeah, it's true. I find that, like so many drummers want to become engineers and so many engineers want to become drummers. It's just like something about it. Like I, I think it's like I think with engineers, the the thing that's attractive about drums is that it's like the one instrument where you get to play with so many toys at once. You know, you get to have all your mics and all your preamps and T- your tell that to my stuff. guitar
1: player clients with massive pedal boards, man. Come yeah, on. That's, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I say with, with bass guitar though, I think bass players, good ones, you know, like, and when I say bass players, I mean people who play the bass because they want to play the bass not like the frustrated guitarists who couldn't find a gig cuz there's too many guitar players so they like learn bass i'm talking about people who care about bass guitar yeah, yeah. they have a they're they're u- uniquely well positioned a lot of times to to be excellent producers because of their um the kind of the way that the bass guitar marries like groove and and all the harmonic kind of complexities and and just sort of like bass is one of those instruments that is like so crucial and good bass players are so rare uh and they 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 have such a they have to know so much about like time and 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 rhythm and groove, and then, just like I said, the, the the music theory aspect of it with understanding chord progressions and like how to kind of play melodic when the moment's right. I mean, they're really like they're they're the good ones are really about the song, and then so they're they're particularly good producers in in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I also think too because the bass is such a it can be a hard instrument to hear in a lot of mixes. So like I feel like the bass players that learn by ear. They're the ones that have like really trained themselves to like hone in on a specific instrument and hear like the, the little details in a mix to be able to learn their parts. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like that would definitely I, I haven't ever thought about that. That's a really good point. But, uh, yeah, I, I've always just known like there's a lot of drummers. <laughs> That's they, they like, are. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We're everywhere, man. We're yeah. yeah places, we're, we're crawling all over the place.
0: <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about your productions and. I'm curious to know, like, when you start a pro uh, a project, how involved do you like to get in producing a record? Like, are you getting involved in the songwriting process? Like, what's your stance there? Because th- I feel like the definition of a producer these days is so skewed, and there's so many different yeah, opinions. Yeah,
1: it, it is, and 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 it it is definitely super dependent on the project. Uh, it, you know, running running a commercial studio and and you know having a, the official title of like head engineer means that people when they reach out to me, most of the time they're 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 trying to like book, book me as a recording engineer. You know, they, they, uh, another rant that I will certainly get into later is my uh, bands that don't have a producer or haven't thought about getting a producer or come into the studio with the assumption that the engineer is a producer. Those are all, um, those that can create a real minefield for the band. But to, to get, to get back to your question, I try to clear up pretty quick when a band reaches out, uh, whether they want me producing at all or not. And, and then, and then you got to kind of have to suss out what that means. So a lot of times the band says like, no, we're going to self-produce. And maybe you got to dig a little deeper to go like, are you actually going to self-produce or are you just not really sure what it means to have a producer and you don't want to feel like you're about to have control taken away or something like that? I mean, there's a, there's a, a trust building thing that kind of needs to take place. Um, and sometimes people say we're going to self-produce and they come in and they 100% self-produce them. I mean, it's like, plenty of artists I work with who are work with, who are very capable producers uh, themselves. And so it's got to sort that out as as far as what that's going to entail for me, if I am indeed producing it, it just, it's some, some songwriting, some songwriters don't need my, my stupid ideas uh, as far as the songwriting goes. Um, Other people I have a great relationship with and we, we work really well together. So it's, it's kind of like any creative endeavor where you, you kind of have to find your groove with a specific person and and try to fit their needs, you know, and, it, and it's genre dependent too. like, I would say if a if a, you know, technical metal band comes in uh, and these guys are all playing circles around anything I could play with a million notes per minute, I'm not going to help them with the songwriting. Like, what I, can, I literally wouldn't be able to play like a measure of like any one measure of one of their songs. So what contribution can I make? What I can do is help with arrangements and structure and say, like, oh, you know, that part. Maybe you need to bring that part back again, or you need a better transition here. X, Y, and Z, but I, I wouldn't consider that songwriting necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, it's more arrangement. But, exactly. But you, yeah. So you, you had mentioned going on a little bit of a, a rant about the producer thing. Let's yes. let's do it, man. Let's let's. Hear yeah. It. What, what are your I, thoughts I'm, on it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm prone to ranting. You'll get a lot of this. Uh, I think that there's that uh, people, a lot of people don't understand what a producer is, what they do. A lot of producers maybe don't even understand (laughs) what a producer is or what they do and how many different ways there are to do it. Uh, I'm in a pretty fortunate position here at my studio in that I work very often as producer slash engineer, but I've also had a lot of really great opportunities over the years to just be the engineer under like really incredible producers, you know, guys who've made, you know, you know, multi-million selling records and, you know, just people who've like invented genres, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. So they're all, they, 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 these guys do things in different ways. And when you start to see all the subtleties and nuances and, and, and the impact it has on the artist, it, it's, it's like almost impossible, uh, impossible for me to like summarize it in, in a podcast interview. You know, there's just like, there's so many moving parts and the, the, it's like, you can't, you can't really understate the impact a good producer is going to have on the project. It's it's really it can really be like totally transformative, even if that producer's style is kind of just sitting around and like smoking a joint on the couch in the back of the control room the whole time. Sometimes that is what the project needs. And if that's the right, if you know, if you're Rick Rubin and you're kind of just this like this presence that inspires people, you're doing your job. Other people are super hands-on, and they're doing what you were asking about earlier—co-writing, um, you know, reworking chord changes, re- reworking lyrics, and all that stuff. And if that's what the project needs, then that person is doing a great job. So um, the problem is, is that artists—I don't think particularly less experienced ones, uh, those who've never worked with a producer, a proper producer—they they don't know, they don't even know what they're missing, right? Like, how could they? That's an ex- That's a. That's such a a uh, situation that's unique to professional recording studios and if you've like never been to a professional recording studio or if you've spent very little time in one you just don't have any way of realizing what that sort of objective uh third voice you know third party voice can bring to the album um i think it's in a lot of cases it probably comes down to like concerns about creative control and maybe budget like people go like oh we don't want to pay like a pay even more money on this already expensive recording to someone who's a producer, not, not necessarily realizing that, like, in terms of creativity, you've got this person in your corner who can facilitate um, your hopefully, hopefully facilitate your wildest and craziest ideas uh, that you otherwise might not be able to accomplish without him or her. And as far as the budget thing, like the amount of bands that come in and waste like massive amounts of time because nobody told them, how to, No, no one prepared them for the session in, in any number of ways. It could be like, as it could be, they didn't. They're under rehearsed, or it could be like, you know, putting new strings on your guitar or having your guitar set up. You know, people showing up with guitars that are poorly intonated and um, buzzing frets. I mean, that's stuff that a any halfway decent producer would catch, you know, on their first day of pre production. Um, and then, and then to say nothing about like arrangement choices or, or if you're doing pre-production with the band, going to rehearsals and things and just finding problems, a super common one right off the top of my head is drummers, you know, if you're in a recording or if you're in a, in a rehearsal room, obviously, uh, I, it, it generally doesn't sound very good, right? Like you it's loud, it's noisy, it's, it's, it's compromised, right? A common problem as a result of that is a bass player and a drummer, um, Kind of at odds with each other, where the drummer is playing a kick pattern that has like nothing to do with what the bass guitar is doing, and and oftentimes is in conflict with it. And if if you're a you know if I'm going and doing pre production with a band, that's like one of the first things I'm going to listen for. And and as a drummer myself, it's something that I, I I tend to like hone in on pretty quick. And asking asking the drummer to change their part a month or two months before their recording session, and then spend the next month or two rehearsing it before they come in to record is like a way, way better approach than in the session going, oh, dude, your, your kick pattern's all wrong. Can you change it? And then like all their muscle memory that they've been working on, hopefully working on um, for however long is now kind of voided in a way, you know? And and so that's one example of like millions and millions of things that can just kind of be time wasters and things that end up costing the band more money. and 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 then they achieve like kind of a lesser result.
0: Of course. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think that it's it's something that, like you said, when you're just jamming in a room, you can't hear shit. Like, it's just like just this wash of noise. Right. So it's like you do need to sometimes just strip it down. And actually, I feel like the last couple of guests that we've had on the podcast lately have have really always, like, have been emphasizing the point of, like, just rehearse acoustically, like, just, you know, or, like, or like turn the amps down, like, halfway or, like, you know, something like that. Like, these kind of tips are the ways that you can, like, start to identify what people are doing. You know, it could be, like, strumming patterns between the guitar player and the bass player or the two guitar players are doing something completely different. Yeah, but totally yeah,
1: different picking patterns. That's another really common one.
0: Yeah, but it's just so critical to, to having to getting that tightness in your recordings to, to be paying attention to what's going on. So I love what you said about like the producer being that person who can help identify those things. Cause often people need it. It's like, you know, maybe it's just ego or something like that. People just like think like, I can, I know what I'm doing. Like, I'm just going to do my own thing. But it's like, sometimes you need that person to be like, no, like, let's just, let's dial us back or let's do something a little different. Let's try something different here.
1: Totally. And you know I mean, uh, part of being a good producer in a way is, is being sensitive to that um, that sort of reticence that, a, that an artist might have about like handing over some amount of power, and I totally get that. I mean, I, I I've been playing in bands since I was like a young teenager and have recorded a lot of times, and I I get the sort of I don't know the fear that you you would you would feel about like like kind of letting someone else sort of into your world and and have some kind of control over what you're doing, but. When you get when you find the right person and and you establish the right boundaries and things that actually having that person becomes like massively helpful if you can just like trust them and focus on playing really well and let them focus on uh, what they need to focus on and and you're going to get a better result like 100% of the time. It's, It's just not there's a reason that all the classic records that we all love for decades and decades were made with a producer and an engineer
0: yeah that producer is just like they're the they're the coach they're the person that's going to make you a better musician at the end of this project and at the, like you know make 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 your songs better you know i i can even think of just as, as an example of and i think i've shared this on the podcast before but i remember like one of my bands we were making like our we had a deal with universal and we were making our first record for that and like i remember our producer was just like had a chat with the guys in my band and were like your drummer needs to like change everything like i was just in my own world at that point i was like yeah, i just want to be the showboating guy or whatever and i remember that, like he, he mentioned to the bands like you might want to kick this guy out or get him to like relearn his parts and for me that was like such a big ego hit you know but like but the band sat me down and they're like hey look like we're not paying attention to each other we need to and like this guy's pointed out the fact that like we're not locked so like let's do that and i remember like we we were doing pre-production for like two or three months and and it was like as soon as we started just listening to each other and it was mainly me listening to everyone else it was like we just became such a tighter band, and you need to have those people that are the coaches and the ones that tell you those difficult things that make your music sound better, right?
1: Yep, yep. Actually, I got a great anecdote about, about a producer beating up on a drummer. Um, there's a, a producer I, I did a record with last year. It's actually just come out, Ward Hayden and the Outliers. I'm actually wearing their t shirt today, purely by coincidence. Um, I swear this wasn't planned. Um, the guy that, so I, I said a record that I engineered for them. The producer was this guy, everyone calls him Roscoe. His name's Eric Amble, and he's a badass country and Americana um, guitarist and producer. He used to play with Steve Earle. I mean, the guy's like pretty, pretty legendary. Um, but he had this great, he's got this great technique he was telling us about. I think he might've learned it from someone that some producer that he was engineering for at some point where when he's, when he's talking to, to a, first talking to a band, especially a younger, less experienced band, he'll, he'll say to the drummer, like, Hey, you know, t- t- give me a list of like three, four of your, your sort of your most influential drumming songs uh, of all time. And then before the session, at some point, he'll bring the drummer to the studio. They'll sit down and he'll hand the drummer a notebook and a pencil and say, "Uh, before we play this, before we play the song, how many times do you think the drummer hits a crash cymbal and how many drum fills do you think he plays? And the drummer will write down what he thinks and then they'll press play and he'll actually tally up the number of crash cymbals and the number of drum fills. And he says virtually every single time there's, you know, the, 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 the drummer estimates, you know, five or 10 times as many crash cymbal hits and like twice the number of drum fills as there are. And it's one of those things where you go, oh, I'm so I'm so influenced by this song and the way this drummer plays is so great. And it's 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 everything to me. And yet you've digested it in, in a completely incorrect way. And you're now now you're doing it wrong, right? Like you, you're it's sort of this reality check for people to go like the songs that work that you love work because the drum the drummer and indeed everyone in the band is playing for the song and not playing for their ego or because they've got some cool chops thing they want to show off. And I I just love that. I think that that's like such a it's like a non-confrontational it's like a really brilliant non-confrontational way to sort of like set someone straight um without without hurting he's not saying anything about their playing, right? It's that's the that's the genius of this. Is he's not saying like he's not saying, "Hey drummer, you're not going to cut it. You overplay." He's saying, "Let's talk about your favorite drummers and what they do and and what you think they do versus the reality of what they do and and how can we kind of like Find the, the what's actually happening and then talk about what that means for this recording that we're about to go do I think that's like that is one of those hot tips man when 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 Roscoe was telling me that I'm like that is the best thing i've ever heard in my entire life. I love that
0: that's amazing i, lo- I that's a great great analogy and, and i you know i I also think about um you know, when I first started drumming, too, it was like the same thing. I used to always like want to I was like learning songs that I thought were just like, you know, a good drummer is like someone who's technical or whatever. And I remember like one of my first weeks of drumming, my, my drum teacher was like, here's this Weezer record. Your homework is to learn every song. And I was like, every song. Like, how the fuck am I going to learn every song? And he's like, just listen. <laughs> and Like, and it's like, oh, this is like simple and it works and it's huge. And So. So, yeah, man, that's that's a great tip there, I think. What you got? Do you have one for guitars too? <laughs> That's a solid one. <laughs>
1: uh, always be tuning. Actually, uh, I'm I'm a tuning freak. I, I often end up tuning the guitars. Uh, I don't I don't have a I don't have as nearly as good of a a technique for that. Oh no! Here's a good one. Here's one that I came up with. This is this is this is a, re- a recent triumph of mine. This is really funny. So I was, I was working with this artist who I was producing and and this was a a situation where I'm like, I was co-writing actually, this is a, a a rare co-write situation for me. Um, but so I'm like super duper involved in this project and it's an artist who has like a pretty well established identity as like kind of a, a, a rock and roller in, in the vein of like, um, Joan Jett, right? Like pretty straight ahead, like pop. Uh, pop sensibility but you know very very kind of punk but melodic yada yada anyway she's working she's 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 kind of retooled her sound a lot she's gotten really inspired by like synthesizers and stuff so we're working on this record that's like pretty synth heavy a lot of drum programming and that kind of stuff and she's got this friend who wants to play a solo on one of her songs and he's like a really good guitar player right like he's he's very capable um, but I wasn't even hearing a guitar solo in the song at all. This is like this super mellow kind of like low, sh- slowish, middish tempo, um, like very synth heavy thing. And I'm like, ah, this, there's no, there's no other guitar on the song. Like a guitar solo felt weird, but you know, she, she said she'd rehearse with him. He'd done something really cool and I trusted her. So when he comes in to record, we get to the solo and it turns into like, uh, I, I like to call it blues hammer uh, music, like instantly. It's like super pentatonic-y, like lots of like very guitar-y, you know, hammer-ons, pull-offs, bending every note. Everything's got like a little run-up to it. It's like way note and way, way, way wrong for the song, right? Great solo if it was in a different type of song. Like the guy's like a killing player, but just completely the wrong, the wrong thing for the music. So after trying to, I was trying to tell him to play the guitar less like a guitar and I, he just wasn't, it wasn't, I couldn't find the language that, that, that connected with him. Right. So we're going back and forth and he keeps playing stuff. And it's like, I'm not expressing myself in a way that is clear to him. He's not playing in a way that works for me or for the song, for the artist. So we're kind of at this impasse and I'm like, here's the thing. Uh, You can, it's, it's, it's like a 32 bar solo. And I was like, you have 10 notes. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to hold up my hands, you know, indicating my, my 10 fingers. And every time you play a note, I'm going to do a countdown. And if you run out of notes before the end of the solo, I'm going to press stop and we're going to wind it back and start it over again. And, you know, of course, needless to say, the first time we did it, he played 10 notes in about two measures and I I hit stop. I'm like, yep, taking it again. And I sat there and I'm like counting down, like right in his face, (laughs) just counting down his number of notes. And after a few takes of it, he started playing these like brilliant, like Mark Rabot style, or like Mark Knopfler style, um, just like wicked spacious, awesome solo. And we we like, kind of honed it down. I think, I think we ended up with like seven or eight notes at the end of it. Like he actually managed to come in like under, under Under, budget and it was great. And it was, it was also just a real delight (laughs) standing in front of this guy going like this. I'm counting down my fingers for the people listening at home. I'm, I'm I'm demonstrating not on the, on the zoom call here, but anyway, that was awesome. It was really fun. So that's, that's one just, just get, you know, get like some kind of counting device, whether it's your hands or, or something, something visual. And you can just count down notes while someone's playing.
0: That's an amazing tip. I like yeah. that a lot. I'm, I'm 100% going to use that at some point. It, it was
1: truly one of my proudest moments. I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and also just like, you know, people sometimes need to be like forced out of their element. And, and you know, if they're used to overplaying, then they need to have someone who puts those constraints on them. And then it, it forces them to think a little differently and, and probably like more just emotionally or whatever through their instrument, as opposed to just being the technical virtuoso and that kind of thing. Right.
1: Yeah, I think one one thing with guitarists, soloists in particular, is that's really like a, a a challenging thing to overcome. Is they guitarists in particular often tend to rely on like licks, right? Like they they've got muscle memory for for certain like short musical ideas, and they string them together in, into a solo. And when you start when, when you get into that, which you know everyone does, it's it's of course it's it's part of why we practice, right? To like be able to play these things on command. But what people start to do is they string together licks that then become longer licks, and then they fall into these like same same sort of patterns, right? So another another cool way to break that habit, uh, and this is something that happened. I I was doing this by accident, and it was a, a guitar player I work with who told me afterwards that it was like a really it was like really helpful for him. And I wasn't trying to be helpful for him; I was just trying to get a take. <laughs> um, but. What happened was this guy, this guy I work with, he's like a phenomenal guitar player. Like he can play every Eddie Van Halen solo in his sleep, you know, like Chopped Master. Um, and we were doing solos and he does, you know, he does every take a little bit differently and they're all genius. But then I would go through and comp and I would pick all my favorite parts. And I was just picking my favorite parts to pick my favorite parts. I just wanted like a badass solo. And when I put it all together and play it back for him, turns out I was breaking his, his um his licks habit, right? Like he would usually string, like, you know, it would go like lick A to B to C. And I would grab like lick D and put it in the middle somewhere. And that's the thing that he would never have played naturally. And then he went back and relearned all the solos as they were edited for the record. And that's when he came back to me and he's like, dude, I've got like a whole new bag of tricks now because of the way you comped the guitar solo. Like, thank you so much. I'm like, I wish I could say that was by design. Now it is. Now I now I actually make a point to do this. But this first time, it was one of those accidents, uh, um, happy accidents of the studio where you're just kind of like doing your thing. And then you realize like, I've actually stumbled upon something really cool here. This is a good technique, which is to re like take all these cool parts and just reorganize them and then play them back. And now you've got something that is different from what that person normally would have done. And then, you know, if you're doing it on the fly, now that I do this as like a, a regular technique, I'll do that, play it back for the guitarist and then go like, now play something like this. And it, it kind of temporarily breaks their um their brain a little bit and they start to produce solos that are not the same thing they always do every time i I should add a caveat that the guitar player needs to be pretty darn good to to use this technique like they've got to be capable enough that they're not gonna um you know panic when you say like now now do something like this. You know, not everyone not everyone has that level of ability. Uh, but when they do, it's a really powerful tool for kind of getting people out of a rut, especially if you're working on a record with lots of guitar solos on it and you start to feel like, man, I've heard that lick like 10 times already, you know?
0: Yeah, that, that's great. Another great tip there. Yeah, I remember I had... Um a long time ago on my podcast, I had James Paul Wisner, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he did like some of the early dashboard confessional records and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure it was him that said this, Um, but he, he, whoever it was, I'm pretty sure certain it was him said that um, even with singers too, like oftentimes, like, you know, you go through the same vocal part over and over again. And if people are having a hard time uh, nailing their parts, sometimes his, his approach was like, he would just get them to do a take where it was like, sing everything wrong. Like, just just sing it, like, just completely different. Don't follow, like, the same rhythm or whatever. Just, like, do something completely different. And he would often record that take, and it was just, like, sometimes there was gold in that take, You know, just because they like they had never thought of it better differently, but it was like a technique that would help you kind of recenter and like you kind of forgot about all those mistakes you were making because now you've just had to make a billion different mistakes for like the exercise. So it's just like another like really cool tip for vocals and helping people reset there, Um, but also capturing some really cool ideas too. like, you know, it's kind of like your guitar solo thing.
1: Totally. Yeah, and with, with something like the vocals, too, that's a probably a really good way to start generating ideas for harmony vocals or something. If some because if they're if they're still singing in key and, and to the you know to the chord changes of the song, but just they're not singing that original melody, if you lay that against what the original melody is, you're going to start to go like, oh, there's a there's a now there's a harmony part, right? You can start to build off of that. That's cool,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, this is this is a, like a great little uh, chunk of the podcast here. I think, you know, this. cuz no, this is this is helpful cuz like these are the things that so many people don't even think about and it can really like change the course of your recordings and and make things often better, you know? Well, so, yeah, I mean yeah. this this is
1: just to get kind of try to bring it back to what started this whole thing in the first place. This little exchange of of anecdotes and stuff is exactly speaks to the idea of like why producers can be so so beneficial because experienced producers have you know i i got you you and i could probably talk about we could come up with all these different tricks we've 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 heard through the years at at for hours right and still only scratch the surface of the stuff that we've done and known um and you know people who've been around even longer than me or you have that that many more tips and tricks to share and and so when you when you are working with someone who's experienced they're bringing all of that back all that background and experience into the studio. You're 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 gaining the benefit if you're if you're in the studio for the first time as a musician, you are gaining the benefit of someone who's done it like hundreds or thousands of times before. Why wouldn't you want that? That's it's it, it on on its face, it seems so obvious, but it is so often overlooked. Of
0: course, and I think anyone who's also getting
1: into engineering should be
0: like even if you're going to record your own record, it's it's a good idea sometimes to just hire a producer just to like have that other third party. You know, like um you'll you'll learn a lot just by you know all these kind of tips and stuff that you're going to see someone else implement in your own sessions you're like oh i should try that next time or like that makes that that works for me you know
1: uh, along those lines i uh when when any of my bands record i never ever 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 produce my own drum tracks ever i won't do it i don't see the it's such a bad idea to self produce in most cases um and to self engineer like i i mean I, I guess i guess i will i would say i co- i would co-produce my drum tracks 100% of the time i will hire an engineer to, to record them for me because you're not going to you're not going to be working at your best if you're trying to split your brain up between all these different processes um another another along the same lines actually i was just having this conversation with um i have an intern who's who's has since become our second engineer here uh and he's like he's really good and he's um through a conversation I had with him and then a conversation I had with another client who I mix for, who is also a recording engineer, just this kind of confluence of events took place where I, I've got a, i have got I had this realization that if I could kind of go back in time and like change one thing about earlier stages of my career, it's that I wish when I was a uh, much less experienced mixer um, and I was just kind of starting to get my head wrapped around like how to be a, Halfway decent recording engineer, I wish that more records that I was working on had been farmed out to someone else to mix um, rather than having me mix them because they would have come out way better and I would have had a far superior sounding body of work to play, not as a mixer, but as an engineer and, and occasionally as a producer. I was doing some producing back then as well. And I was, I I, I kind of like listen back to some of my my earlier work and go like, man, this is a great band. I did a good recording and, and I'm really proud of the way I produced it, but the mix is like definitely not as good as it could have been, you know? And I think that's a drag. Um, it's a drag for me in terms of just thinking back on, you know, different directions my career may have gone. And it's also a drag for the, for the band who like, you know, deserves the best in my opinion. Um, So I was, I was expressing that to this, to this um, intern turned second engineer I have saying like, listen, man, if you, you know, a lot of people who are like way better at mixing than you, you're doing a great job producing these bands uh, here in town. I'm like, it makes so much sense for you to f- f- like farm some of this mix work out to people more experienced than you. It's, it's going to make you look better in, at the end of the day. You know, it's going to bring the most out of your productions and out of your engineering tracks. And there's nothing that stops you from still practicing. You can still mix the track, right? Like, it, it isn't necessarily what gets released, but there's nothing stopping you from still working on it. So you still gain the benefit of the practice of having mixed the album you know, that is one of those things that I, if I could go back in time and change for myself, I would change. I I hope that, um, that, that second engineer of mine takes that sort of to heart. Um, and, and one particular, the reason that it came up is because there's this other, there's a client I have who records himself, uh, and I, have been mixing a bunch of stuff for his band, but he's gotten really into recording. He's actually annoyingly good at it for how young he is. Um, (laughs) uh, but you know, he's, 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 he's not, he's, he's, you know, for his age and experience level, he's a pretty good mixer, but he's not like, you know, frankly, he's not very good. Um And he's, he actually sent, he. T- there's a band, kind of a prominent band that he's working with that he's, you know, hired a, uh, there's another, the band hired another mixer to work on it and it sounds like freaking awesome. And I'm like, dude, your name is now associated with this like really, really good sounding record, you know? And it's like, you couldn't have accomplished that if you'd have mixed it yourself. And it's, I get that it's disappointing to not be the mixer, especially nowadays because the, the, the role of mixer has become like weirdly glamorized. But um, I, as I talk to the guy whose podcast is called master your mix, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it, it, it's, it's like, there's like these, this, this whole celebrity mixing mixer trend has kind of created this, um, this thing about, you know, mixers are like the coolest guy in the process, you know? And so I understand why people want to mix their own tracks, but you know, you, if you're thinking in terms of like, what's best for the music and and if you're younger and less experienced what's what's the best course to take for your career the the best course is the best possible product 100% of the time and until you're the mixer who can deliver that it is probably not best that you mix this stuff
0: That's man that's huge advice. I I think that's what people do need to hear cuz it's so true. It's like I feel that a lot of us get into this because we want that level of control with our music. You know, it's like, I just want to be able to record it all myself. I want to have a creative vision. I just want to be really good at all this stuff. But you're absolutely right that sometimes there is a need to just farm out and get someone else who's way more experienced at it. And I think that even, even for mixing it mixing engineers, there's, you can learn those same sort of lessons by hiring a mastering engineer. You know, it's like every, like along those chains of like there's there's always people that are like helping each other learn where the, the potential in their mixes are. So so yeah, man, I, like I think that's a great point that, you know, people just need to, you, you could probably advance your name much faster when you're working with like a, a good team of people rather than trying to take all the credit and, and working at it slowly, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: if you just, if you look at the, huge excellent sounding and influential records of you know music throughout musical history there's like not there's like truly almost none that were made by one person like who is both acting as artist producer and then also as engineer and mixer there's like that's that's virtually unheard of you know i mean you've got you've got like your occasional like uh, like Imogen Heaps, who are who, like Swift John Stevens, like these people who are like so fabulously and extraordinarily talented to like the mutant level of skill. But, you know, I know it's not a great, very inspiring thing to say, but like mm, virtually no one is that good. You know, it, 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 most most people do their best work when they find the right team and they specialize at what they're best at. And collaboration is pretty, pretty crucial to like getting the best results.
0: Of course. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, the, the whole point of this is to just make the best sounding music out there and, you know, serve serve the song, serve the artist, you know, and grow your career. Like, we're all in this together as a team. Like, that that's our job is to help people get to that next level. Um, as far as, like, you know, putting in all of this work and hiring a producer and everything we just talked about all these tips of like, you know, ways to make people play better and serve the song a little bit better. What would you say in your opinion makes a good song?
1: That's such a hard question. It it's definitely genre dependent, right? Like there's different criteria I think for different genres. But I guess the one truism and it's so it's such a it's almost too obvious to even say like it sounds kind of corny but it's just got to connect to the listener but how it connects to the listener and, and exactly what that means i think is going to depend on so much you know like does it does a dubstep track have the same criteria for connecting to a listener as uh you know a punk rock song of course not you know uh the dubstep audience is having a great time at a music festival high on drugs and they want like you know they want like big ass bass and drops and kind of just like something that is fun to dance to. And, uh, the angsty 15 year old Benny Grotto wants to listen to a song about how the cops suck. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like it, they're just completely different criteria, but at the end of the day, they're connecting with the listener in, in whatever way that is. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's, there's no, there's no right answer to that song yeah, or to that, to that question rather. Um, it's it's it varies by song and genre and, and all and by individual you know by by the listener yeah totally
0: i 100 percent agree with that I, I you know every every genre is different and uh you, you mentioned something that kind of tied into a question i wanted to ask you about you mentioned like kind of the dubstep and how you know everything's all about just like getting the massive low end and all that stuff and one thing that i really like about your mixes is that i feel like you always have this like massive low end like to me your mixes your mixes sound heavy they sound full and you know that that's definitely a a challenging thing especially in a lot of rock music I find a lot of people have a really hard time with like getting that low end getting the kick and bass balance all that kind of stuff so I'm curious to know like do you have any tips for getting that low end so locked in
1: uh good monitoring helps (laughs) <laughs> you know i mean that's a, a like a rote answer but it's true uh you can't it, it's 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 uh it's tough to um it's tough to hear what you're doing down there if you can't hear it you know but i don't know i i think i i i know it's so hard for me to talk about uh my my mixes in this way because i am pretty uniformly mortified by the way everything i work on sounds when i'm finished with it uh so it's it's hard for me to go like yeah that sounded good i can tell you how i did it and most of the time i'm just like oh man i i hope no one realizes that this is terrible <laughs> you know uh but i i think that i i take a lot of care when i'm mixing to like um present it i i uh, i but better way to put it, I don't like to rely on the mastering for anything, right? Uh, much to the chagrin of some of my mastering engineers that I use, where I send them, you know, loud, heavily processed uh, two tracks. Uh, most of the time, they, there's there's been very few complaints, but I, I'm sure I'm I'm making some people roll their eyes from time to time with that stuff. I, I just I think that like managing the dynamics of the song is really important, and that means. Um, whether it means compression and limiting or like lots of fader rides or something. Um, I think managing that stuff as you're mixing is really important. And I think that tends to translate to uh, a more sort of stable, um, whether it's stable low end or mid range or whatever. Uh, you're not, you're not giving the mastering engineer a situation where they've got to do a bunch of stuff that's going to change the balances or change the interaction of the parts, right? Like if, if, if you're working on a metal record and Um, it's got, you know, 10 dB of headroom. You've got these big giant transients and the band is then telling the master engineer, we want it to be like, you know, minus six. Like we want it really loud. The way to accomplish that for the master engineer is going to be to like cream it, you know, clip it, limit it, compress it, do all kinds of wacky stuff. And then at the end of the, at the end of the mastering, it's not going to sound anything like the mix anymore. So no matter how you nailed, how much you nailed stuff in that mix, uh, all that kind of goes out the window. So I think if anything, if there's, if there's like, um, if there's something good that I'm doing, (laughs) it's probably just trying to make it sound finished from, from as early a stage as possible. That actually extends all the way down to tracking. I I would add, I mean, I'm usually trying to record the sounds that I want to hear. I don't really like, I actually don't like mixing very much. I kind of find it stressful. Uh, and I really like recording and I really like producing. So I, I try to make the mixing process as painless as possible for myself by like, committing to decisions and um getting getting as specific as I can with with the, the tones that I'm capturing.
0: That's a, that's a great point. It, but it all I mean it's all um it's all like uh what's the word? Like every stage kind of sets the stage for the next one, you know? So you have you have to have great recordings in order to then Make the editing process smoother, and then make the mixing process smoother, and then make the mastering process smoother. It's like all of those things need to kind of piggyback on top of each other. So you can't really drop the ball in any of those stages. Otherwise, you're kind of making, you're kind of working uh, from a bit of a, a loss, so to speak. Like for when, you but by the time you get to the next stage, so, um, so yeah, I think you know it is. It's super important to definitely get your track sounding as as close as you can to the final product at every stage of the process.
1: Yeah, and I would in addition to just sort of like objective quality, obviously you need high objective quality at the beginning to achieve it at the end. But I, I I would say like, as a, like my, my kind of producer brain says, if I am working on a tune, just as an example, like if it's a, um, a song that needs like really bright and really ambient drums, we'll say if I, and, and typically that would mean like adding a bunch of high frequencies and compressing the shit out of the room mics, right. Just for, you know, if anyone's not sure how to accomplish that, that's how you do it. So if that's the sound I need, but I think to myself, well, I I don't want to overcook something. So I'm going to wait till I'm mixing before I add the high frequencies and compress the shit out of the room mics. Every time you add another sound, like as you're overdubbing bass guitars, whatever um, you're probably gonna have tracks that are like overly dynamic and not bright enough. um, Meaning you have this opportunity when you're say cutting guitars to like, maybe you got to like brighten up the tone on the amp a little bit to match what you're going to eventually do with the drums when you mix. And if you don't do that, you end up with the wrong sound and then you've got this whole conundrum when you're mixing to try to make it all work versus if you just make the drums bright and compressed and loud when you're tracking, then every time you overdub something, your subsequent tonal decisions on the other parts of the arrangement will be informed by what you've already captured. Uh, And, that means you're gonna hear the context, this brighter drum sound, that's gonna make you go like, "Oh, actually, the guitars need to be brighter too." And 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 you're gonna kind of build everything up according to that, and end up with a far better sounding and much easier to mix uh, end result.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. I really like that idea of just you know getting it right and then building on top because because yeah, you're right. It does inform every decision you make, and and. If everything is sounding dark to begin with, you're probably going to end up with darker sounding tracks and, you know, as you're piggybacking. And then in the mix, you're gonna be like, oh, shit, like this is nowhere near where it needs to be.
1: Right. Have you ever I'm sure this has happened to you and probably it's happened to a lot of your listeners, too. It's a pretty common one is that you are sitting down to to start mixing a song and you you know, you like a lot of people, uh, I often start with drums, you put up your snare fader and you're like, man, I really got to like the snare is pretty fat sounding, but it needs to be way brighter. So you make it way brighter. And then all of a sudden you have all this like insane hi hat bleed, right? That happens so often. If the tracking engineer had gone, man, I bet the snare is going to need to be way brighter on this, you know, this rock band that wishes they could afford Chris Lord Algae to mix. I better make the snare really bright. And they added that at the desk or, you know, whatever, at their channel strip when they were recording it. All of a sudden, they're going to go. Oh shit! Now the hi hat bleed's coming through. Let me go move the mic a little bit to dial back some of the hi hat bleed. And now, all of a sudden, you've got less hi hat bleed and a brighter sound. You've you you've done so much more than is possible to do with the mix, uh short of like a sample replacement. Because if you put a gate on there, you're going to get that little burst of of cymbal bleed every time the snare hits, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe you got to tune the drum a little bit differently. I mean, you you have so much more. The, the earlier in this, the earlier in the process you go you have so much more flexibility in, in what you can do to change the tone. And, and that, you know, that kind of carries on right through to mastering that The further you get into the process, the there's less you can do. Um, your options get increasingly limited. And so exploring those sounds, uh, as in like as specific a way as possible, is like hugely important to a successful production. I think, um, just because context is everything that's, you know, mixing is all about balancing and, balancing is like all about context
0: yeah absolutely and that that's a great example with the snare hi-hat thing because it's it's so true it's like that is a quick easy way to know whether you've got the right mic positioning or if you have to do something different with it so yeah that that, that's a really great tip um which actually ties into another question that i that i wanted to ask you about which is that another element of your mixes that i really like the sound of is your snare tones like to me like I mean it's to me now that I know you're a drummer it makes total sense because I you know like I I feel like when I listen to your snare tones they sound like a snare drum they 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 have a lot of body to them they sound nice and full and I don't know like to me like maybe it's just me being a drummer like I find snare to be the hardest thing to mix like I just I hate mixing snares for whatever reason uh I feel like they like they need to have so much like character to them I don't know what like maybe this is my own way, drummer way of thinking of it you know
1: it's funny, because to me the easiest part of the drum kit is the snare drum. I always know what I want to do with the snare, and it's like, if I if I, I if I would like to like walk you into my my live rooms right behind right behind the computer here, I could show you my embarrassingly large collection of snare drums. I'm like a snare freak. I love drums. Uh, I love I love owning them, and I love having lots of them. Excuse me, but I to me the snare drum's so easy. It's like I I, I don't. I, <laughs> it's like one of the few parts of just mixing where I'm like, I am i doing. <laughs> yeah, and, and I definitely, I like them really bright. Like, I basically like to get them as bright and as fat as possible, and I think that's pretty easy to achieve. You just kind of, like, turn up the high frequency until it hurts, and then you turn it down a little bit, and then you turn up the bottom end until it sounds stupid and woofy, and then you turn it down a little bit, and, like, you compress the shit out of it, and, like, sometimes you have to, like, uh, you, I don't know, distortion or clipping is, like, pretty great sounding on snare drums. So it's... If it's, if you obviously depends on the style and stuff like you, you, you know, you not everything needs to be the big, bright, loud front of the mix snare, but even, even, um, even like a more mellow, like darker, like fat kind of dry snare sound is, you know, benefits from a little bit of clipping. You put it this way, snare drums sound really good coming off a of tape and tape is a clipper more or less, you know, it's a, it's a particular type of clipper. it, it shaves off the high you know the high end tends to distort a little bit before the low end on tape and so I don't know using that principle it's pretty easy to like work on snare sounds you know just <laughs> make them bright and then like I I, I could tell you I, I EQ before the compression almost 100% of the time on snare drums that definitely helps because as you as you compress the snare you bring out all the boxy mid-range weirdness right so if you hype up the top and the bottom um, and kind of do some shaping, the compressor will respond a little bit more um, f- in a more flattering way. Uh, and then maybe afterwards you might have to suck out some individual resonances if 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 they're there. Uh, but again that 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 kind of takes us back to the whole tracking question which is like choosing the right snare and with the proper amount of dampening and that kind of thing. you know if you're if you're tracking your snare with a little bit of eq and a little bit of compression, that's going to tell you a whole lot about whether you need another piece of moon gel or like a snare weight or one of those, you know, big, you know, big fat O ring, whatever they're called. Yeah. The big um, fat snare it, drum. Big fat they, snare. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, any of that, you know, that, that, that's, that's why you start to make some decisions when you're tracking so that you can then go back into the live room and make some adjustments to the drums, to the drum itself, loosen the snares. I, I think tuning, like, I don't know. I, I, I could kind of on one hand, uh, maybe, maybe at this point more than one hand, but the drummers don't know how to tune drums almost, almost like almost to a person right like it it, it, I you know luckily I'm a drummer so I I, and I I'm passionate about drum tuning but I can it's really infrequent that the drummer just tunes their own kit and does a good job at it when I'm recording bands it's almost always I have to go in there and do it which is fine Um, I don't I don't dislike it but it's like you know it eats up time and and it takes a little bit of the um, the tonal sort of control away from the drummer which is a a bit of a bummer just like philosophically uh but anyway that that's the the i don't know it's funny it's funny that the, you, you bring that up about the snare drums being so difficult because to me it's really kind of those are the things that i just seem to that seems like so easy to me <laughs> and, ma-
0: and maybe and maybe the, the solution really lies in the fact that you do have such a massive snare collection and you're getting yeah. the right tone to begin with right like, yeah but I, but i also think that it's interesting that you it goes back to what you said about like kind of just adding the EQ very early on, but it's mm. like a large part of your snare sound seems to be coming from all of that pre-processing before it's actually being thrown into the DAW.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's like another little side too, I guess it's maybe worth, cause we're, we're kind of talking about snare close mics a lot in this conversation. And, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, it, it overlooks a massive part of the sound of the snare drum, which is the overheads and the room mics and, you know, any, any sort of, I, I usually end up with at least one kind of like fun mic on the drum kit where I, I just stick it somewhere weird and cr- distort it, or I, I put it somewhere totally weird and well, usually I distort it. Uh, but some, I, I like to have some, oops, I like to have some kind of, uh, uh, sort of, uh, like an X, I call it the X mic if, on my pro tool session. I usually label X and it's just the one that I put somewhere funny uh, and and blending in a little bit of that can bring kind of an interesting, strange dimension that adds a little bit of extra character or detail. Um, but then, you know, you thinking about how you treat the overheads and how you treat the room, and especially on a rock drum kit where a lot of the sound is actually from the like the punch is coming from the close mics, but the the tone is like a lot of it has to do with the room. You know, like if if any uh, if any of you guys or if you or any of the listeners have ever checked out like the Chris Lord, Algae uh, Steven slate, um, like snare, snare samples. They're like kind of shocking sounding, right? They're like carved out. They do, they do like a couple really specific things. And that's something, this is something that, that, that Chris is a master at is they do something very particular in the low end. They do something very particular in the high end. And then there's like some piece of the mid range and everything that isn't necessary is gone. And, but then you listen to the ambient samples and it sounds like a drum in a room again, you know, it's like, I think a a similar approach is, is advisable, right? Like let your snare close mics, like, like snare drums don't sound like snare drums when there's an SM 57 an inch away from them. Right? Like no one hears the snare drum that way. So you, you use that source for like really specific things, attack body, whatever it could, it could be both. It could be neither. It's like pretty dependent on the, on the song. And then, in order to make it sound actually like a snare drum again, you've got to maybe do something with the ambient mic treatments or the, the overheads or something like that. Actually, here's a, a, a funny producer uh, anecdote is uh, I was doing a track with um, Jack Douglas, who's like a pretty f- legendary 70s rock producer, 70s and beyond. Um, he's He's been keeping busy for a long time. But he's like, you know, he did like early Aero, the first couple Aerosmith records and Kiss and like Cheap trick. The guy, he like signed Alice Cooper and shit. He's like, you know, pretty incredible career this guy had. Uh so I was mixing a song that that um they they tracked the drums at another studio, and then we did some overdubs, like vocals and guitars here at my studio, and then I was mixing it. And as I was working on the snare, snare close mic, Jack actually said something to the effect of like, dude, make sure it still sounds like a snare. And I'm like, I will, it will. Like, I know what I'm doing is very extreme right now, but it's gonna when I put the thing all together, it'll make, you know, make more sense. And I, you know, I unsold the snare and he's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Cause I, I, it's, you know, sometimes what you're doing to those close mics is like really kind of weird sounding. Uh, It's true. And yeah, just don't sound like that up close. They don't sound like that up close. Yeah. And, and, and I don't see any particular reason to try to honor like any, any kind of like, you know, faithful, uh, I don't know, like honesty in, in sound when you're micing something from an inch away where no one ever hears it. Why try, why, why, why give a damn about whether that's faithful to the source, right? Do whatever it needs to be done. And then, you know, let, let the big picture be the thing that maybe faithfully recreates the, the specific tone that you have or that you have in mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that kind of introduces another topic too, which is like, the, the topic of overheads and room mics. And I know a lot of people think of overheads as these symbol mics. You know, there's kind of those two schools of thought. So there's people that are like symbol mics, that's the way I do it. Or there's like the big picture kit kind of people. Sounds like you're more of the big picture kit kind of person.
1: It's pretty dependent. I, this is my my broken record thing is I'm always, it totally depends, you know. That's true with overheads too, though. So if I'm working on like a really technical metal record in my room, specifically, um, my room has a pretty, it's like a really big low end, which is rad when you're doing like mid tempo or slower rock tunes, like the kick drum just sounds huge, the tom sound huge. But if you've got a drummer in with, with, you know, a lot of double kick and a lot of really fast, intricate tom work, that boominess actually becomes a problem, right? That's gonna that's gonna cloud up the clarity pretty fast. So in those cases, I would treat the overheads more like cymbal mics, and I'd filter out a bunch of low end from the overheads. But um, if I'm in here doing a record that's, like I said, more more kind of in the in a classic rock type of vibe or if it's slower mid tempo, uh, I will be more inclined to use the overheads to capture the whole kit Uh, unless the drummer sucks and then that changes everything. Um, Or even if the drummer is okay, but is dynamically inconsistent, um, like one of the one of the hardest like one of the difficulties of mixing drums is just lot. I think a, a lot of drummers are putting as, as much thought as they ought to into um like the dynamic consistency or just their dynamics in general like if if the drummer is a cymbal basher you have no choice but to use your overheads as cymbal mics that's just what they're, they're just going to be that right um but if you have a really good drummer who's super who plays the kit really well um in terms of the internal balance then you have a lot more you you, you can choose the best option as opposed to kind of having your, your hand forced. Um, And then, and then it kind of gets back to that question about like, what does the song or the genre call for, you know? Um, On the other hand, if the drummer's got good internal dynamics overall, but sometimes just like hits the snare way too hard or hits, you know, if they, if they just, they, they're not necessarily consistent, I should say, whether they're always gonna be hitting something or other too hard or too soft, you're kind of going to have to reconsider how you use, those mics, right, like um your your tones are gonna change a lot if if you get something rocking and sounding really good for one section and then and then in the next session, all of a sudden, the guy's like nailing the snare drum your 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 snare sound's gonna change right, um, and probably not for the better if you've got everything really dialed in in the previous section, so then you've gotta to start to think about, can I use the overheads for part of the snare sound now all of a sudden, the snare sounds like maybe boxy or um. Uh, there's, there's too much ambient information on it and it's not sitting correctly anymore. So it's maybe you're filtering the overheads. Maybe you're putting a limiter on the overheads to knock the snare down. Any of those techniques would work, but uh, it's all kind of going to come down to the drummer and the song and the style.
0: Yeah, of course. And you also bring up a kind of a good point too, of the the different types of drummers and, you know, in particular, I think like the bashers, Like, you know, we hear a lot of rock music that sounds, you know, so over the top and the snare drums sound like cannons and whatever. And so, like, I think a lot of people think that they have to beat the shit out of their drums to get them to sound as heavy. But sometimes, like, you do need to tell people just, like, ease off a little bit because then you're not choking the cymbals as much or you're not digging into the skin and choking the snare a little bit more. You get more body off the drums that way, you know. So, so yeah, it really does come down to the drummer and and kind of sometimes telling them to reel it in a little bit to, to get that that controlled sound that you can work with
1: and and i think beyond um i mean you know a a drum that's hit really hard has a particular type of sound that can be good or bad and just as a drum that's hit quietly can have a sound that's good or bad but i think what's important is in, in at first for session drumming at least like studio drumming is consistency if if you're in a band that calls for like really hard hit drums but you're you maybe physically not capable. I would fall into that category, by the way. I am not like a very muscular drummer. Um, if if I record that, if I record a drummer who can't hit, hit very hard, but hits really consistent, I can do all kinds of things to make it sound like they're nailing those drums as long as they're consistent, right? Because um, the processing that you do, especially when it's dynamics dependent, is going to fall apart when the dynamic changes, right? So uh, uh, sort of a on, a on a very related note, I used to tour with this old Boston kind of like sort of legendary hardcore band called Slapshot. They've been around since the eighties and I did a record for them. And then the drummer that was on that record left the band and they had a tour booked. I knew all the new songs because I just produced a record for them. So I, I went and, and joined the tour and then played in the band for a few years. And the drummer they had before me, really big dude hit the shit out of the drums, man. He was like a, just a savage drummer. But over the course of a given set, he'd play quieter and quieter and quieter as he got more and more tired right like he, he the set the set that, that that the band played was long it was like you know 25 30 songs of like really fast hardcore so it was like very physically demanding and i'm pretty um i'm pretty i'm a pretty efficient drummer so i would just go in i'd play like medium te- like medium dynamic just so that i could keep it even the whole way through and the shows would sound awesome because it was you know i'm not nailing the drums but the sound guy would dial in a compressor and he would dial in whatever eq he had to do and that sound it's he made it sound like I was hitting the drums really hard and then it would stay consistent the whole set. And so the live sound was really good as a result. And it's a similar similar concept in the studio where if someone comes in and goes, Yeah man, I'm a badass, super hard hitting drummer, it's like, Cool, you were for the first five takes of the song. Now from takes like six to ten, things are starting to wane and when I comp it's a complete nightmare, you know? Uh, not to mention your your drum heads are worn and I I we, we, we need to spend 150 bucks to rehead your kit <laughs> yeah everything's
0: out of tune now and also <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> lugs are just falling off totally it's a, yeah <laughs> it's, such a common it's, thing. it's
1: like the consistency thing is critical i mean I, like i said I'd, I'd rather have someone who doesn't hit hard enough but stays at the same dynamic for the full um for the full recording than someone who's going to come in and like most of the time be hitting hard but every now and then just or, or they either lose steam or every now and then they just kind of like lose energy you know yeah for sure. Well, one other question that I wanted to ask you about your productions
0: is, uh, I have to ask about this. I saw you worked with weird Al. I did. Yeah. Highlight of my life. Yeah. And that's amazing, man. Like, his Bad Hair Day album, like that was like my first cassette ever. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So, so yeah, I, you know, I'm just curious to know. Like, I, I saw you were the the vocal engineer for his lo- latest records, and I'm, I'm just curious to know what the process of recording his vocals is like. Are you like auditioning different types of mics to try to emulate the songs that he's parodying, or like well, what, what does so that look right, like? So,
1: with, with that record, I actually didn't record Al, I recorded Amanda Palmer, um, who's a, uh, a friend of Al's and a client of mine, she's, she's singing. There's, there's a song on there. That's like a pixies style. um, It's not, it's not a direct parody of any specific uh, Pixies song, but it is a um, in the, you know, in the style of the pixies. And so he, he's singing, he's singing Frank, the Frank black parts, and she's singing the, um, the Kim deal parts. Uh, So Al actually produced the session um, via, via basically via skype you know uh but the actual vocal record that i was recording the vocalist i was recording was amanda palmer
0: gotcha yeah yeah i just i just assumed that like you know there must be like an art to just producing that kind of stuff and like getting the
1: right sounds with with working with them the the raw tracks were awesome you know they, they'd sent me the tracks to um to 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 cut amanda's vocals to and I I got stems. I got like a stereo drum stem and and a bass and a stereo guitar stem. And they like nailed the sound of all those of all those tracks. It was was pretty cool. But his band is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen them live. But man, his band, like what they do is remarkable on, you know, like super quick. uh, They're not they're not spending all this time between songs like dialing in gear or anything like that. They just go song to song to song. And they like on a dime. They just they nail the styles. They nail the they nail the tones. It's really, really exceptional that band is, that's like a killing band.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't suspect because it's like, they're known for like Weird Al's known for being jokey and this and that. So you think like, oh, they don't take it very serious. But it's like, th- that. I know that that band is like incredible. And like, they are insanely good. And like, especially when it comes to like the polka stuff. And like, they're just, they're so talented. So yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, yeah, I was just curious to, to hear what it was like to work with him. And, and sounds like you know, if, if I'm assuming like he was producing it, you said, right. So,
1: yeah. Yep. So yeah, he probably learned some
0: tricks from weird Al.
1: Yeah. He's so kind. I, I, I'm like, I'm like the biggest weird Al evangelist now because, uh, just like on a, on like a professional level, the way he treats people is so cool and how he was, they, they came through on a tour after we did that session about, about a, it is about a year after the session actually. Cause you know, the cycle for the album takes a while for it to come out and all that. and, um, I met up with it like we went to we went and, like hung out at his hotel and stuff like that Like he, he invited me to hang out in his like you know in his hotel room I was like dude that is cool and I, I at the time I had a girlfriend who'd who's a comedy writer and she just gotten her first book deal and he's like bring her along and and he was like giving her all kinds of tips about like you know comedy writing and and how to like kind of steer her career I mean the dude's just like the guy's a completely awesome dude he's a legend yeah he's amazing yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> cool, man. Well, yeah, w-
0: I, we can start to wrap up here. Like, I, you know, I, I, I just I just wanted to know about Weird Al it was great. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll start to wrap up. But um, I'm just curious, like if anyone wants to learn more about you and follow you online and kind of learn more about the projects that you're working on, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um, probably on Instagram. Um, I'm let me actually I got to look up to see what the handle is i i'm uh not like a massive social media user um uh, but i do have a studio account and a personal account for the instagram <clears throat> uh the uh, what do we got here oh it's benny.grotto for instagram uh b-e-n-n-y dot g-r-o-t-t-o and then the studio account is mad oak studios that's plural um it's written out as one word Um, and I'm now just noticing, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Maddox studios, uh, avatar, like profile pic is a picture of my cat, which is funny. I put that in there as a placeholder (laughs) for something and evidently forgot to change it. So you can, you can, you can check out my very adorable main coon. His name is Gus uh, at Maddox studios on Instagram. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, lastly, are there any cool
0: projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I had a crazy week last week, actually. This is funny timing. So this is one of those things where, uh, you know, like, you, you know, you never really know, like, what's going to come up, right? Uh, I had a I was supposed to start an, an album that I'm been, I've been hired to produce. I was supposed to start it last week. Uh, and that's actually one of the things I'm really looking forward to is this, this kind of legendary post-hardcore band called Super Touch. And this record is like, so awesome. I've been I've actually do, doing a little co-writing on that one as well. Um, uh, but the guy, the guy was having, the singer was having like a a voice issue. And so he canceled, which is a big bummer because I was looking forward to getting started. And that very day, I got a call to do a little short, um, mixing session for the Rolling Stones, which is a completely insane left turn that, uh, I'm still sort of like, how did that happen? That's wild. So I did that. Um, that was pretty rad. I've got this, this super touch record I'm working on. That's really cool. Um, there's a uh, a really excellent uh young artist called francis forever who rose to some prominence via tiktok i've been working with them a bunch um another tiktok artist who i've got a session with coming up probably will have happened by the time this podcast comes out i imagine is a an artist called margot baillier maybe baillier i'm actually not 100 sure but uh she's french something it's baillier um she's got like a you know, almost 2 million followers on tiktok i'm not on tiktok that is a world that is so foreign to me but i'm happy that they're finding the studio uh and and her music's really good too she's like a, a kind of a folky songwriter um artist she's really good uh and then there's a uh a artist uh boston based artist called uh, named Krista johnson that's actually the 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 artist i was working with when i was telling you about that guitar solo that i was counting down for um her she's got a series of singles that have been coming out over the last like couple months i think the album comes out the full album comes out in november Um, but she is so freaking good and i'm i can't quite wrap my head around why she isn't famous yet she's one of those people where you're like she should be she should be like known by a lot more people than she's known by so that's a record i'm really proud of that that uh, that i recently worked on as well
0: amazing oh man i gotta check it out then sounds awesome
1: yeah. Yeah. She's great. She tours a lot too. So she'll be, she'll be, uh, she'll be plenty visible.
0: Awesome. Cool, man. Well, Benny, thanks again for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Really my do pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Like so many great tips in here. And I think that, you know, anyone who's ever gone through that experience of, struggling to like communicate with an artist or like get them to like simplify their parts and that kind of stuff. Like just really serving the song. I think you gave us so many great tips that people can definitely use and implement right away. I know I'm going to be definitely, I'm definitely going to be taking that uh, 10 finger thing. <laughs> oh yeah, please
1: make it, make it, make it known. It's like my, uh, it's like my best contribution to the, to the advancement of the art. <laughs> So that
0: was my interview with Benny Grotto, and there were so many great tips that he shared there. I love his approach to coaching musicians, and I love the tip that he shared about, you know, trying to get people to simplify their guitar solo so that they can serve the song better. And that whole 10 finger technique, it's so good. I'm definitely going to be using that in a session at some point or another, because sometimes you just need to be tactful with the way you coach people through their performances. You don't want to just be telling people their performance is no good or that they're overplaying it or, you know, like anything that might offend someone. So I love that approach that Benny gave because it, it sets the constraints on someone, but without it being a jerkish way to do it. Instead, it's, it just kind of makes it a little bit more of a fun exercise, snaps people out of it and, uh, you know, gets them out of their heads a little bit. And, you know, that exercise combined with the one that he shared about the drummers and asking people to identify how many fills there are in a song normally with their favorite artists. You know, I think that's also a really good reality check that, isn't an offensive way to tell people like, okay, let's simplify this. Let's dial this back a little bit. So yeah, some great tips here. And, uh, I totally agree with everything that Benny was saying in this podcast about working with producers and how you can just learn so much when you have an experienced person in the room. And that applies whether you're working with a producer or you're hiring someone to um, help you with mixing or mastering, all of these things, you can learn so much from other people. So with that said, I hope that you really enjoyed this episode. And if you did, definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com and that's where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings and mixes from their home studios. And if you're looking for a simplified process so that you're not feeling scattered throughout the process of mixing instead you just want to create amazing sounding mixes have focus and know exactly what to do visit MasterYourMix.com because on that website, I've got tons of great resources to help you. And one of which that you're gonna wanna check out is called The Mixing Mindset. It is a book that I created a couple years ago that is all about simplifying the process of mixing and showing you exactly what order you should do things in, what you should be paying attention to, where to be boosting EQ, when to use compression, when to cut with EQ, uh, when to add effects, automation, all of that kind of stuff. It makes it super clear so that you know exactly what to do with your mixes, so you can get better mixes done in less time and feel way more confident with the end results so once again check that out it's called the mixing mindset it's available at masteryourmix.com so that is it for this episode i hope that you've enjoyed it and i'll talk to you in the next one guys take care thanks for listening to the master your mix podcast to have your questions answered submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com please go to itunes and subscribe and leave a review And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.